What's happening, Hardscapers? This is episode 191 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And on today's episode, we're joined by Todd Irvin. He talks to us about protecting trees in the hardscape construction process, how we can go about doing that, and what we should be looking for with trees on our projects. And if you need bookkeeping, accounting, or CFO services, reach out to Cycle CPA. They're cyclecpa.com or cycle underscore CPA on Instagram. Let them know how to hardscape sent you for $200 off. And we'll talk more about them later in today's episode, as well as the how to hardscape headquarters software. This is going to help you budget and estimate and so much more. Take control of your numbers with this software at members.howtohardscape.com if you want to book a demo. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Today, we're joined by Todd Irvin. He is the founder of the Toronto-based company, City Forest, and a certified arborist specializing in educating homeowners, students, and professionals about the care of trees and stewardship of the urban forest. Todd, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Todd, let's get started to get to know a little bit more about you yourself, how you got started in the industry. Can you give our audience a little bit of background about you? Uh, actually, I was in university for totally something totally different, sociology, and I was working at, at a landscape company uh, in the summers to pay the bills. And uh, there was this group every morning that would go out and load their trucks with pulleys and ropes and chainsaws. And I was like, oh, I want to work with those guys. I don't want to. I mean, I you know, it's fine doing the landscaping, but uh, trimming hedges is one thing. But what are those guys doing? And uh, they were arborists. And I began working on that crew. I went to Humber, our, you know, our college, and did the apprenticeship in arboriculture, uh, and uh, the rest is history. I've been an arborist for almost 25 years now. That's and uh, I worked for a long time for one company called Bruce Tree um, with a great arborist, and I apprenticed with him, and uh, I did a bunch of things there, but uh, 10 years of consulting um, as far as like development, uh, consulting arborists, helping people um, build things uh, and get permits to work uh, around trees. Uh, and But I've also like pruned trees and cared for trees and, and spent a lot of that time. I love teaching people and training people about trees and their importance and, and how to grow trees in an urban setting. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I've been doing. Amazing. And what, what's a common phone call from a prospective client to your, your company? Like, what are they typically looking for uh, service wise or what kind of like common questions are people asking you knowing that you're an arborist and uh, specialize in that? Yeah, I mean, the company I've started now, City Forest, it's really um, it's not like a big tree care company that goes out and cuts big trees down every day. It's more about teaching people, uh, um, making people more aware about their landscape and helping them care for it. So um, I often get calls for people that just don't even know what's in their backyard. And it's like they just want me to come and explain what the trees are in their yard, explain um you know, how to care for them, um, trees they maybe should plant. And then I do some pruning. Um, and I've done some actual landscape installation as well, because, um, you know, I like doing that. And I have a sense of how to work with trees and around trees so I can, um, you know, do plantings and, and restoration to help with that. Uh, so yeah, those are a lot of the questions. But often people too are like planning to do design or landscaping, and they want to get input on how to do that so that they can grow trees, but be also to protect the trees they already have. And so protecting those trees is something I really, you know, spend extra energy with because we have these big, 
huge trees that are 100 years old and or older in cities and it's the ones that we love and the homeowners love um, but if we're not careful we can potentially damage them so and uh that's that's why we have you on the show today is talking about working around trees especially in hardscaping where we're excavating around trees uh quite often and i even had to refer to you to for you know where where we're going to start even this conversation and um, I guess we're going to start with consequences because I'm sure you've seen a lot of consequences of people digging around trees, digging up roots, working around trees. What are these common consequences or consequences in general that you're seeing after, say, a hardscaper has come in and installed something around a tree or another landscaper has worked around trees? Yeah, I mean, it's the irony is that often the landscaping is being done because homeowners want to enjoy those trees. So they want a patio under their big, beautiful oak. They want to sit under that shade. But the act of doing that work can often have real consequences for those trees. And so um, what I see as a consultant that would go in or an arborist that would go in after the fact is like, you know, 10 days, uh, 10 months after you see very few consequences because the thing about trees that's so amazing is that they store energy in the form of sugars in their trunk and their roots and they can use their energy for a long time um, because they have to go through the whole winter with no leaves, for instance. And so in the spring, they need that energy. So trees can actually you know, store that energy for a long time. They live very long and they take a long time to die sometimes. So people that do the work and then they leave, they have don't see the consequences. But two to three to four years later, those trees will start to die back and their leaves will get uh, smaller. There'll be less leaves. They'll start to see dead branches in the top. And in many cases, or in some cases, they will die. Um, and in other cases, um, if the if the excavation is really severe and very close to the trunk, those trees can become destabilized and they will tip over. Um, I give a lot of workshops to landscapers and uh, landscape designers, landscape architects. And one of the slides is a tree that's tipped over in a front yard, big Norway maple that's tipped over and crushed a house. And I always ask them, what is going on here? Does anyone know why this tree tipped over? And some will say wind and some will say storms. But then there's always one or two good, uh, you know, landscape installers that are say like, that's a brand new inter uh, retaining wall. And so in the act of putting in that retaining wall, they would have had to do the tiebacks and they would have had to dig far beyond that retaining wall and they cut every single root. And those roots are what are keeping those trees in the ground and the tree will then tip over. So we can see trees slowly decline and die, but also in the worst case scenarios, we actually will see trees tip over and potentially, you know, crush houses, damage cars, and potentially hurt people. So there is real fundamental consequences to um, not protecting trees when you do this type of work. Yeah, a lot of questions just came to me just from that conversation right there, that answer right there. Uh, signs of dying, say you, you're talking about two, four years down the road, you might say, what are some initial signs of dying that uh, a homeowner might see in their tree? that they might call you for or um and, and even going up beyond that if a tree is showing signs of dying are there ways that a homeowner you yourself can kind of uh help that tree along and to preserve that tree a little well you have to think about it if it's a young tree and you've done damage to the roots um those trees can often bounce back because just like a teenager that gets injured, they can very quickly or get sick, they can very, you know, quite quickly recover. But the thing we're dealing with often is mature trees. So these are trees that are large, they have big trunks, they are potentially 100, if not 200, if not 300 years old. And that's just like, 
you know, doing an operation on an old person that the, the, the likelihood they're going to recover from severe injury or some type of damage is much lower. So what you're going to see with a, a large old tree is that they just can't pull water from the ground anymore. And what happens is the tips of those trees start to die back. And so you'll see the tree starting to die back from the very top because trees are a giant pump. Um, they're pulling water from the ground up into their crown, into their leaves. And there's tiny holes in the leaves, which and when the leaves heat up, they actually let the water out as a vapor. So it creates what's called evapotranspiration, where it's pulling water up from the roots all the time. A single tree in a day can pull up, you know, 450, 500 liters of water, 150 gallons of water in a single day because of all those roots. Um, and so those roots are what's keeping the tree cool, but it's also getting the leaves so they can photosynthesize and produce more energy. Uh, and so the roots are fundamental. And the other thing that we don't often realize is that almost 45%, give or take, of the entire tree is below ground. So we think of the tree, if you ask someone to draw a tree, you ask a child to draw a tree, um, they start from the trunk and they start from the ground. But in fact, a very low, you know, 40% or more of the roots are below ground, of the tree is below ground. And the other thing that I think your listeners really have to understand is the vast majority of roots are in the top two feet of soil. And the vast majority of the absorbing roots, which are these tiny little fibrous roots, which pull in the water, are in the top foot of soil. Um, so right up at the surface. And I always ask my students and stuff, why do you think the roots are at the surface? Because we have this notion they're kind of going deep down, like they're going down to China or something, you know, like the water's way underground. But the reality is, I say, why? Why do you think they need to be at the surface? And that's one person always says, because the rain, the water comes from the rain. And so the tree has this big network of roots that we call like a mat of roots. There are these tiny fibrous roots, not just the big ones, tiny little fibrous roots that extend out really far because on a hot summer day, say in August hasn't rained for three weeks, you get a 20 minute rainstorm, that tree wants to grab as much of that water as it can. So the water is all out at the surface and uh, sorry, the roots are all out at the surface ready to grab that water. And often, and uh, if, you know, trees often the roots um, can extend out beyond the drip line and the drip line is the edge of the crown. So the edge of the foliage, uh, foliage, uh, the edge of the leaves. And it's out beyond that because if it rains on a summer day, you want the roots, the tree wants the roots to be beyond their own canopy so they can grab that water. Uh, and so the, we often will say that the roots of a tree can extend out twice the height of the tree. So if you have a 50 foot tree, the roots are potentially reaching out a hundred feet in every direction. So a tree that has a 50 foot wide crown or a sorry, a 50 foot tall tree can have a root system that's 200 feet in every direction. I know your listeners are going, well, that's insane. I work in backyards and there's houses on all sides. There's no way the roots are that far. I'm just saying that is what it could do. So if you see a big oak tree in a farmer's field, it could extend out that far. And then you might say, well, what about the farmer's plows? Well, they're damaging the roots. So there's, you know, there's always limitations, but a tree in the middle of the field could do that. In an urban setting, they're much more constrained, but that actually makes it even harder because that means that there's, they're relying on their roots in a much smaller area. So you're actually, if you have a big root system, like the one I just explained, if you damage one small piece of it to put in a patio, for instance, that tree's going to be fine. But if you're in a backyard where the tree's roots are really constrained and they're all kind of in that backyard because there's retaining walls on all sides or there's houses on all sides, 
the work that you do back there can have a lot more consequence, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I want to get into talking about working around the actual roots. Uh, but you also mentioned tipping over. And I'm sure some way, somehow, if, say, you were putting in a retaining wall or uh, you were the landscaper in charge of the project, that it can be, you know, fingers can be pointed back at you for a tree tipping over and hitting a house, hitting a car, something like that. Liability can likely be pointed back as at the landscaper. So this is obviously a topic that uh, needs to be discussed amongst hardscapers for us to understand. Yeah. And it's like, as I said, I worked in landscaping. I, I worked as a consultant and many of my clients were landscape architects and landscape designers. So it's not just about the touchy feely, like I love trees and you're doing something bad. It's much more about everyone, you know, we need hard landscaping. We want hard landscaping in our yards. Uh, it's that we have to do it right. And um, yeah, like, and so what happens is if something does traumatically happen and a tree does fail, for instance, uh, or die, um, people will hire a consulting arborists, for instance, to come in and they will get lawyers and then they will start to kind of work backwards. And as soon as the landscape, the best thing, like uh, as far as consulting arborists, uh, as I, when I did that is when the homeowner would come out and bring pictures, for instance, say like, oh, this is the work they were, this is when they were doing the job. And you're like, oh my goodness, they had big excavators in the backyard or mini excavators. And um, they were taking down, they took down two feet of soil they excavated and right there we know that you know roots were damaged because of that um uh, you know and something which should be said and i know maybe for your american listeners this isn't always the case but in much of uh you know uh, canada now many municipalities have what we call tree protection bylaws and these are bylaws that specifically state that um, you can't cut down trees, but you also can't damage trees without permission or work around trees for this very reason. Um, and that applies to city property, but also private property. So in the States, there's a, they, stay, they are starting to get these bylaws as well, but um, all city trees. So if you're working near a tree that's on city road allowance, this applies even in the States. Uh, in Canada, even private trees are protected. Uh, often the size is, you know, 20 centimeters, you know, so for your American listeners, like nine or 10 inches uh, and uh, or, or 30 centimeters. So like a foot diameter trunk. And if those trees are bigger than that, uh, depending on the municipality, um, they will need a protection zone. So an area that you're not supposed to work within at all. Um, and so, for example, in Toronto and many of the municipalities around Toronto, like um, Brampton and Oakville and Vaughan and other places follow the same bylaw that if you have a tree that's uh, one foot diameter, 30 centimeters trunk, uh, it will need 2.4 meter radius protection. Uh, so that's, you know, five meters across. A tree that's 100 centimeters would need a protection zone of uh, six meters radius. So that's 12 meters across. So that's a whole backyard in many instances. So, um, you know, for a landscape, uh, you know, contractor that's been hired to put in a landscape in a backyard, if they are using excavators, if they are putting in hardscapes, and that tree is, you know, does require one of those tree protection zones, you are, you know, supposed to get um, an arborist report and a tree protection plan, and, uh, and then get permission through the bylaw um, to do that work. 
And I'm sure your listeners are going, oh my God, I can't believe another thing we have to do. But that is often the case. And it's for those very reasons. And that's not to say you can't work within the protection zone of the tree. It just says that you have to do it in a way that's thoughtful and considerate of the trees. And often you have to work with an arborist to ensure that you're not doing things that are going to cause those trees to die or fall over. Um, and so I'll give you one other example. There was uh, Ian Bruce, who I worked for, um, was a, you know, a, a consultant that was often doing this type of litigation type work where things had gone wrong. And there was a landscape contractor who had been hired by a homeowner, uh, did not get any uh, permits, uh, did not work with an arborist and just started building a new like parking pad and driveway in a front yard. And he was doing excavation and installation work, hardscape installation on city road allowance uh, and in the front yard. And there was a big city tree, a big silver maple that was in, in the road allowance. And that road allowance simply means, you know, that area that the city owns that's on people's front yards or front boulevards. And he had cut all the roots of this tree. And so the city actually hired Ian to come in as like a forensic third party. And in the end, he determined that the tree was destabilized because too many roots had been cut uh, and the tree would likely fall over. And so the city... Uh, then from that determined the price of the tree and there's a way to determine the price of the tree using this method uh and they determined the tree's value was twenty five thousand dollars and then they put fines on top of that and then they made the contractor plant a new tree as compensation so that contractor who thought he had this you know twenty five thousand dollar uh you know driveway installation job just got fined approximately forty thousand dollars, and likely was going to be faced with litigation from his homeowner uh, client, because the client was the one that actually gets the bill. So the client is the one that actually gets uh, the bill from the city or gets sued by the neighbor. And so then it comes obviously, uh, you know, shit rolls downhill. Not to quote, you know, and uh, the person that did the work is going to in the end pay. So this is a one in a hundred situation, but that one time could be something that bankrupts your company. So we need to understand these things and, and work in a way that's considerate of that. I just want to take a break from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Cycle CPA. You may have a CRM or project management software in place, but what data are you using to ensure your estimating is accurate? Having a proper accounting setup and accurate bookkeeping done is key to understanding overhead expenses and other costs that must be recouped in your estimates. Cycle CPA is a remote bookkeeping and CFO firm that helps to connect the dots from the financial reports to the hardscape and landscape data needed in order to reach high profits. They provide landscape and hardscape industry benchmarking, job costing financials by service line, advisory meetings, and much more. Cycle CPA's team of accountants are specialized within the hardscape and landscape industry, and you can visit them at CycleCPA.com and for $200 off, mention the How to Hardscape podcast. Now back to our episode. Really interesting, and it's good to get uh, a, an actual uh, real-life story of one of these things happening. Um, that being said, working in around that protected zone or in trees in general, you mentioned uh, being considerate of the tree. What does that look like? What is uh, excavating around a tree and being considerate around a tree when excavating? What does that look like? Well, I think the understanding is like to kind of map. One of the things you would want to do is to map out the yard and to do a design plan. And then you would want to inventory the tree. So you want to assess, okay, 
because in some cases maybe a tree is old and dying and it should just be taken out beforehand and that's maybe part of the design process but if you want to also identify that's a valuable tree that's a neighbor's tree that's a city tree and then decide how big those protection zones should be uh and then try to i know this isn't always possible to do landscape design and installation that kind of avoids those protection zones if you can if that's not the case then we have to remember like again those roots are in the top two feet, but especially those fibrous roots are in the top foot of soil. So any excavation, there's no way to kind of nicely excavate, like excavate. Everyone who's listening has dug and they're like, oh God, I hate working around trees. Every time you put your bucket in, you bang into these roots and you got to pull them up. And so just imagine those roots are what keep those trees alive, but also keep them standing up because trees, not only, sorry, roots are not only pulling up that water to keep the tree alive, but they're also anchoring that tree in the ground. And so those roots extending out, you have to imagine like two feet of soil sitting on top of all those roots is what keeps those trees in like hundred kilometer winds from not blowing over. So by digging them up and damaging them, that that is consequential. So to answer your question, the one thing is, if you say, for instance, do know you need to cut some roots, you really should be digging at least by hand or carefully excavating with the supervision, ideally of an arborist, and then carefully cutting those roots cleanly. So just like you wouldn't prune a tree with a excavator bucket <laughs> because you're going to damage those root uh, tree branches and have these big gnarly tears and they're going to rip down into the trunk exactly the same thing happens when you use a bucket to cut roots because when you're pounding into those roots the roots are shaking right back to the trunk and all the secondary roots that come off them tend to tend to break but also when you do rip those roots out you're actually will tear them back even beyond where you need to do the excavation and not only that but then you're making these big tears in the roots which then are very hard for those trees to seal off and 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 you know um, grow back from so if you do have to cut roots Firstly, try to avoid the root zone. Secondly, if you do have to cut roots, to do it very carefully and deliberately. And, and then thirdly, um, I guess the other thing is, the other thing is that beyond, say, the area where you're doing the actual digging, the actual excavation, you're driving potentially many excavators, even trucks, on top of the, the soil around the yard. And that's something that creates compaction. And I imagine many of your listeners know what compaction is because you're trying to compact often below where you're doing insulation because you don't want differential settling. But compaction of say a, a yard or a garden bed or you know that is also damaging the tree roots because what happens is when you compact the soil, you're pressing all that pore space out of the soil. And as a result, water can't penetrate. There's not enough oxygen and those roots will die. And also roots grow by pushing through loose soil, like in a forest, they just push the soil away, like tiny little fibrous roots just go through the voids between the soil particles. If you crush that down with like an excavator or you crush that down with by parking your trucks under the trees for a week, cause you don't want to, have your trees, your sorry, your cars, trucks in the sun, uh, which happens all the time, um, those roots will then die there too. So, you know, if you must work in a backyard, limit the excavation, the excavation you do should be done in a very conscientious way. And then also avoid driving around and damaging the roots everywhere else where you're not actually doing the, ex the installation work. Yeah. And I, I've actually seen somebody uh, using an air spade. Have you seen that uh, often in your line of work to actually do the excavation around roots? I've done a lot of air spading and I've had this dirt up my nose and yeah, all <laughs> of it. Uh, so, and we, you know, also uh, HydroVac. Um, right. We used to use HydroVac. Now HydroVac um, is the one where you shoot this, uh, the high pressure water and you create a slurry and you suck it out with a vacuum. 
Um, the thing about hydrovac is it's, it can be quite effective, but the the power of the water can actually damage the roots as well. Um, and it's also quite expensive. You need a huge truck. Air spade is when you just use high pressure air through a, ho a hose. You just have to rent a compressor and you use this high pressure air. And it's amazing. It doesn't damage the roots and you can expose them. And so like if you're a big firm that has like, you know, multiple crews, they're doing work every day. You know, it, it makes sense to have one of your crew go and become an arborist and not to say to become an arborist i don't mean to spend you know 10 years training to be an arborist but you can go and become an international society of arboriculture certified arborist um, you just have to prove that you work in the landscape industry that you've worked with trees and then you can get um and this is you know an, an international organization uh, and then you can get the ISA certification, and then you actually can be the one that writes those reports if you need to, for instance, and you can be the one that does this work. And then it would make sense to just buy an air spade and, and whenever you're working around trees to be doing excavation uh, thoughtfully, and you're going to get the client on board in many cases because they're going to want those trees protected. So um, you can see that there could be an investment in doing this. And then just you're kind of building out your the services you offer as well, right? Um, so yeah, airspace is definitely a way to do it for sure. Um, there's, you know, benefits doing that too, because often there's buried electrical in backyards and, you know, uh, and you can identify those things as well before you excavate. You know, all these homeowners, you always, you know, you look like, oh, there's a shed in that back corner. That doesn't look like it was originally there. And the homeowner just had ran like an extension cord underground or something, right? Like, so there's value to doing airspading for that reason as well. Yeah, just a lot of things coming to my mind right now with that. And you mentioned uh, expanding your, uh, you know, not necessarily your services, but your expertise or having somebody in the business expanding their expertise can really set you apart, especially when dealing with a client and especially maybe on that initial consultation, talking about trees and talking about how you can protect trees in the excavation process, knowing you know, the homeowner knowing that you have that expertise when you're installing a patio around trees, uh, I'm sure can really set uh, hardscapers, landscapers apart from the competition when they're talking about how they're going to protect those tree roots to the clients themselves. Well, absolutely. And I think like often we've talked so far about the consequence of not doing something and then the kind of shit hits the fan after. Um, but being proactive, um, you can have a client and this happens to me with my own consult quoting and tree work is they'll say, I've had three quotes already. No one even mentioned my neighbor's oak tree. You know, no one even mentioned the consequence of their work. And, you know, so that's like, whoa, like, yes, there's going to be many clients that a don't have trees or don't care, but the ones that are conscientious, they're going, and those are the ones that got to be honest, the ones that have the big trees often are the ones that have the money, you know, like the, the neighborhoods that have the big old trees are often the wealthiest neighborhoods and um, they love those trees. Um, trees increase the property values. You don't want to piss off your neighbors. So yeah, if you're the one that's the, bringing these things to people's mind and to attention, you're going to be the one that maybe gets those jobs because you look more conscientious than the other, you know, the other people are just going to kind of come in like a bull in the China shop. Right. Um, and something like, not that I shouldn't be asking you questions, but um, I think that there's not just, you keep seeing excavation. And I mean, I think that there's multiple ways to install hardscape. And I think that there's an old school kind of notion that you have to go down a foot at least, and you need to drive a compactor over top and then you need to pour, you know, 10 inches of limestone screenings and you have to compact that. Uh, and then you have to put an interlocking wedge tight to each other. That's one type of hardscape installation. I mean, um, I did in, uh, hardscape in my backyard um, 
and I use flagstone and I put it on HPB. So high performance bedding, which I'm sure you're very aware of a self-leveling non-compacting, right? So limestone screening is compacted to, you know, they're as hard as concrete, right? Uh, and they're not porous. Like we think of limestone as porous, but once you've packed it down with all the fines in it, like it's it's not porous. The other problem with limestone is that the screenings, and now there's probably people in other parts of the, the country and in the States that aren't using limestone, but in, in Canada, in, in Ontario, we have a lot of limestone quarries. So there's a lot of limestone. And the limestone dust uh, those fines, um, that's what creates that density. But also those fines are really high in pH, like really, really alkaline. Uh, and because of that, they change the pH of the soil. And that will also be really damaging to trees. And you'll see trees that after the whole yard has been covered with limestone screenings, um, that the trees will start to turn yellow because they can't properly photosynthesize anymore because there's um, the pH has changed so much in the soil. And there's a consequence there. The other thing is when you're doing that, for instance, the old, you know, the, the heavily compacted limestone screenings, and then you're putting interlocking or you know, something on top that's really tight with no joint space, there's no water getting through. So even if, say, for instance, you didn't damage the roots in the construction, which is unlikely, um, there's no longer going to be water getting down to those roots. I said a big tree can pull up, you know, 150 gallons, 500 liters of water in a day. All of a sudden, there's no access to water anymore. So those trees are going to dry out that way. Um, and so that's another consideration. So I think you know, you can probably tell me more, but my understanding and what I'm seeing is that the way that we do hardscape insulation is changing. Like a lot of times the interlocking now has those gaps so that water can get through and people are using HPB a lot more. And I've used it myself. And I'm going to say in my backyard, I used um, flagstone and then I used HPB that I poured below. Uh, and it was, you know, I put 10 inches in some spots because it was kind of a sloped. I sloped the soil away from my house and then I put HPB and I have put uh flagstone on top of that dry laid, you know, no mortar HPB as the gaps. Uh, I tried to have a really small tolerance of only like less than an inch between each stone. And it has not shifted an inch like in a, in, in Ontario free spa. Um, so anyhow, I'm just saying that maybe like the notion that every time we have to bring in, an excavator and then compacting and what are you building? Like if you're building a, a fire access road where a fire truck has to go down it, absolutely. I would never begrudge anyone for building at that. But if you're building a simple walkway to a back shed, we really need to be excavating a foot. Like, you know, like we have to start asking ourselves, is that always necessary? And yes, that is like the you know best practices. Um, but are we like, is there a value? I remember being in Spain many years ago and it was actually for my master's of forest conservation when I, we went there as a field course and we were just walking through this small old town and they, the whole, all the old streets were cobblestone and they were doing um, plumbing or, or sewer work. And they had just taken all the cobblestone. They had lifted them out. These are probably 200 year old stones. They had set them in a pile and at the end of the week, I was the whole week we were there. I walked back at the end of the week and they were just taking those stones and they put them back, you know? So there is a value, I think, to having dry laid stone that can be lifted up and moved and set back again. And, you know, we've been doing dry laid walls, for instance, for, you know, hundreds of years. And, and so like, I think this idea that there always has to be mortar, there always has to be like heavy compaction, maybe not, maybe you can tell me otherwise, but. 
that's one of my dreams is that we don't always have to be so invasive in the first place. Hey, do you have a budget set for 2023? Are you starting the estimating process with a budget in place to ensure that you are recovering your overhead expenses, labor, material costs, profit, and other hidden expenses within your business? Do you know that you're making profit on certain projects throughout the year? If you're struggling with any of these things, then the How to Hardscape headquarters can help you this year. Check it out at members.howtohardscape.com or shoot me a message at howtohardscape on Instagram. This software will streamline processes in your business. It's going to help you budget, estimate, ensure that you are making profit on projects throughout the year and help you adjust throughout the year. We're also going to be continuously improving this software to include more and more features, as well as the content that's already available to members right now if you're looking to train your employees as they come in. So once again, members.howtohardscape.com, the price will continuously go up as more features and as more content is offered over there. So there's never a bad time to get signed up with that. And with that being said, let's get back to the episode. And uh, there's more and more products coming on the market, especially you talked about um, joint fill. Joint fill, that's actually uh, water installed and it is permeable. So the water gets through. But not to mention just that, but also synthetic bases that uh, reduce the amount of excavation. So these synthetic base panels, which replace the entire base. So you would just be doing an inch of HPB, the base panel, which is three quarter inch, and then the pavers or whatever that go on top of that. So I, I assume and actually that's what I do in my business is whenever we're coming close to a tree. I use that as a selling point that we're going to be installing this synthetic base so that we're not going to be intrusive to your tree roots. Um, explain to me what you mean by synthetic like is it a, a, like a gravel or something or is it actually like pads? it's a foam yeah it's a foam pad so it's okay. a polypropylene foam pad they're like two foot by three foot and uh, they interlock with one another so essentially you're just screening out HPB and putting these pads down and then they interlock on top of that okay yeah I mean that's great I mean one of the things is maybe it's not porous but one of the things that's positive is that if I just by locking together for instance it disperses the load too, yes. right? And so it's all about dispersing that load rather than having point loading, which is where you get the really heavy compaction. And then there's also the other products, which maybe you've seen like GeoBlock. Uh, there's just like these brand names, but they're these like um, plastic, what are they like? You know, two inch deep, three inch deep plastic uh, sheets that lock together and you fill them with aggregate after. Right. And, and so they've using those sometimes in university campuses and stuff where they want big lawns, but they still want um, fire truck access, for instance. But I've used, I had a contract where they were converting an old church and they wanted to put parking where the lawn was, but there were these big oaks and we used geoblock. You still mm-hmm. excavate, but much less. Right. And because they click together. So it's not hardscape per se, but it still is kind of like a, a surface material. And because they all click together, they disperse that load. Mm-hmm. And then these uh, these pads I was talking about, they actually have holes in them. So oh, they great. actually do allow water to go through, which is nice. And uh, so my question about that is, if you are letting water through, say you're using like an open base like HPB, where it doesn't have fines, water's going through it. Um, 
are the tree roots going to eventually find that water, be attracted to that water, grow into that water and cause any issues in the future? Is this something that we should kind of be warning clients about, say, if we're coming like close to a tree, those tree roots years down the road will eventually find that water and grow into that and maybe cause issues with the interlock or um, what, what's your opinion on that? You know, it's it's a good question. And I would say that the small fibrous roots really aren't the concern, like those ones that do find uh, water there. And they're not necessarily like roots want to grow where there's nutrients. They want water, but they also want nutrients and they want soil. And so they're not going to necessarily grow up into um like say gravel or something right they they will get the water that's below that the bigger concern is when you have a large root uh and say you've bridged over that with landscape uh with the landscaping and that root over the years as it takes water much further beyond in its fibrous roots that bigger root starts to get wider and wider and that can heave up uh landscapes and so again like the, the further you can build from the trunk of a tree, the better, because that's where you're going to have those biggest roots. And, you know, the thing about you and I, we're in, you know, like Toronto and Ontario, and we have a much shorter growing season. And we don't see a lot of consequence of root heave here because the trees just aren't growing as vigorously. And I always see, like read my like trade magazines and they're always talking about damage to infrastructure by roots specifically sidewalks and we just don't see that in toronto because the trees aren't growing that aggressively but yeah if you're in california or something like you have a big ficus tree or something or like a big uh, maple like it's gonna or oak it's gonna definitely if you're too close to that trunk will heave up those those um those whatever you've installed and so that's something to definitely be concerned about. But I don't think the small fibrous roots are as much of a concern. I mean, I've never seen it here. Um, and, you know, if anything, like they're taking some of the water, but that's going to stop from water pooling and stuff, right? So there is maybe even a value because they're taking some of that water out of the soil, uh, which may be causing problems otherwise for your landscape. So, uh, you know, I don't think that's a huge concern, but I would say that stay as far away as you can from the trunk and those big roots. So I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure doesn't have a specific answer to it. So uh, do what you will with this question. But how much we're planning a project, we're putting in a retaining wall or we're putting in a patio. How close is too close to a tree? And I know this is, uh, you know, it depends on the age of the tree and the root span and so many different variables. But uh, however you want to answer that, how close is too close to a tree? How much is too much roots to be invasive to, to, you know, cut back or whatever you need to do cleanly to preserve that tree? Um, however you kind of want to go with that, Todd. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, yeah, it's a big question, because it really depends on the tree and the age and the size. So those are some of the questions you have to ask yourself, like, how old is this tree? How big is this tree? And then from there, you can kind of work backwards. Um, as I said, a young tree, you know, you've seen trees that have been transplanted, they come in, and they take a ball, a root ball, and they move that tree. So they're cutting most of those roots, and they move that tree, they plant it somewhere else, it grows again. So when you have a younger tree, you can be a lot um, uh, more aggressive as far as how close you can go. Uh, at some point, you still don't say you have a Japanese maple or some really nice ornamental. Um, you can still bad, badly damage those trees, but you can go closer. So, you know, within 
you know, a meter or even less. Um, but when you're with a mature tree, like if you're getting within, you know, two or three meters of the trunk of a tree, when I say mature, like the trunk is, you know, 40 centimeters or greater, um, you know, over a foot diameter, if you're getting within two meters of that trunk and you're cutting roots down more than a foot, you are risking the potential that tree could just tip over. Okay. So even just one side of an excavation, like one side of the tree could potentially tip over. Now, the other issue is if you go all the way around the tree, say, for instance, with excavation and installation, um, that tree is much more likely to die than if you say, just go in one corner, right? So think about the tree's whole root system as a pie, um, I always try to encourage people, um, say a full pie or pizza. Uh, I always encourage people if you're going to do a landscape uh, installation of, to only try to cake a slice of the pizza or the pie out of one corner, but not to go all the way around because that's when the tree is going to fail or potentially die. So the other thing I would say is, you know, we have those standards and they're very easy to find. Just put in tree protection zone uh, table into any Google and you'll see this, this table that's being created, which shows, you know, a tree that's 30 centimeters, one foot diameter needs 2.4 meters of radius protection. And what's that in feet, like eight feet or something. Um, and then every 10 centimeter diameter of trunk, you need another uh, 60 centimeters radius protection going up and up and up. Right. And so, uh, and 60 centimeters being about two feet. So, you know, you can see that as the tree gets bigger, you need more protection. But what I would say is whenever possible, stay as far away as you can. Uh, and if you do need to go close, go close. And I would never go closer than two meters if you can avoid it. But if you need to go closer to go close only in a small section of that pie, you know what I mean? Um, but if you have a plan to do like interlocking all the way around a tree and you're tamping right up into the trunk's uh, root uh, root plate, um, that tree is doomed, like doomed. Um, and you'll see it. It happens there. I've seen when people install like asphalt and they are literally tamping in within the flare of the root right up to the trunk. And that tree is just going to cook for one thing because it's going to be so hot the roots because uh, the roots need to be cool and when you have hard surface like that right above it they're going to cook uh, but there's no water and there's been so much damage uh, so yeah stay as far as you can but it, yeah if you have to go close only go close for a portion of the tree uh, and, and and as you said like you know i was talking earlier about these different installation methods and you know having this deep base and heavy excavation and compaction maybe the one place you just back off when you come up you know, to an area that you know there's roots and you do use the synthetic that you mentioned or you have a shallower base or alternatively, and I mean, this is maybe uh, <laughs> the wrong thing to say, but maybe in those instances, you go to like a wood deck situation or you go to just pea gravel or you go to, you know, uh, prefabbed, uh, you know, pavers that are just laid on grade, you know, heaven forbid. Um, because in those instances, and you just warn the client, like, listen, we're putting some pavers on grade here, or we're putting some flagstone on grade, or with a very fine base. Um, and in, if in five years, they sh they heave a bit, we'll come and we'll, we'll come and put them back for a small fee, you know, and we're doing it because of the tree. And I think that they're going to, in most cases, understand that uh, versus just insisting that this poured concrete path goes from front to back, you know, so I think, I'm seeing so many interesting designs now, um, other than just the original, like the typical, 
you know, hard. Like, there's just many ways to do it, you know. And there's some cases where we'll even encourage bridging, you know, where you raise the grade a bit, you know. So maybe you have a single step, uh, you know, 10 feet that way and a single step 10 feet that way, and you just raise the grade there. And so you still get your contiguous kind of nice path, but in this one case, you go up so you don't have to go down and excavate into the soil. There's uh, just having this as education and speaking to people like you uh, just provides that little bit to be uh, mindful of what's around us. And in that planning process, there's tons of different solutions that we can provide clients with. Todd, uh, this has been such a great conversation. I've already held you up longer than I should have. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Where can our audience go to find out more about you, yourself, anything that you got going on? I have a website with my business. It's called uh, cityforest.ca. And so, yeah, check me out there. I'm also on uh, Twitter, Todd, T-O-D-D underscore Irvin, I-R-V-I-N-E. And I also have an Instagram account, which is uh, city underscore uh, forest uh, as well. So I there I post some pictures of like the work I do as an arborist and landscape installations and things like that. Perfect. Todd, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. It really means a lot that each week you tune into our episodes. That really helps us as well as ratings and reviews. If you're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that really does help. If you need bookkeeping, accounting, CFO services, reach out to CycleCPA, Cycle underscore CPA on Instagram or CycleCPA.com. Let them know how to hardscape sent you for $200 off their services there as well as the How to Hardscape headquarters if you need a software in your business to help streamline operations. That's members.howtohardscape.com or just shoot me a message on Instagram at howtohardscape. And we look forward to meeting with you next week on the How to Hardscape podcast.